Before we launch into the Hour of Bauer, a tribute to his friend Clayton Christensen, I want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate. Next Estate specializes in English-speaking, buying, selling, and managing of properties in the German market. They're Berlin-based, and you can find them at next-estate.com. Our guest today is the father of resource allocation theory, included in his 1970 groundbreaking book, Managing the Resource Allocation Process. He has been a leader in general management at the Harvard Business School for over five decades, where he is the Donald K. David Professor Emeritus. He was Clayton Christensen's doctoral thesis advisor and worked with Clay to develop and stress test his theories. He is with us today to recognize his friend and revisit that famous 1995 article that spawned so many of Clayton's famous theories, Disruptive Technologies, Catching the Wave, that preceded the innovator's dilemma. This episode, in a way, is a prequel to episode one with Matt Christensen on the innovator's dilemma. It is a great, great, great pleasure and honor to welcome for an hour of Bauer, Joseph <laughs> Bauer. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Aiden. It's a pleasure. So great to have you with us. I've been dying to have you on the show. And behind me here on, on the shelf, people will see a couple of your books there that I hope to cover in the future for more hours of Bauer. <laughs> Let's start with that friendship that you forged with Clay from working together, writing together, being his thesis advisor. I'd love to share that with our audience. Well, uh, after I published the book, Managing the Resource Allocation Process, which is, I think, 1970, um, I developed a, a seminar. I, I think initially it was uh, an MBA seminar, uh, and then it became a seminar in the doctoral program uh, on uh, a seminar on resource allocation. and. Um, there were a, n a number of doctoral candidates wrote theses using that model, and uh, I, I'm trying. I was trying to remember. I know Malcolm Salter, who was on the faculty for many years, uh, wrote a thesis where he looked at uh, the resource allocation process in vertically integrated companies. And then Bob Ackerman, who was on the faculty for a while, looked at diversified companies, and then others looked at highly diversified companies. So there was a uh, just a, a fairly long series, a lot of theses, a kind of a shelf of theses where people were exploring uh, other areas of work. And uh, Clay... It came to Harvard Business School after a business career, and uh, he took the seminar when he was a doctoral candidate. And it was in that seminar that we met and became quite friendly. Clay was a really extraordinary in the amount of work he could do and the brilliance he brought to that work. It wasn't just plugging away. And we got very friendly because he just really uh, had so much interesting to say. And as we got friendly, 
it was in that context that we began to discuss this problem that really perplexed him, which is why uh, successful companies couldn't keep it up. What was the brand that led to his thesis work? I'd love to share a little bit more about the the personalities because one of the books you wrote behind me there is the CEO within and capitalism at risk is another one, and I find the the traits that you recognized in Clay, the intellectual humility, also from you and from all the contributors to this show is such an important aspect that in the past wasn't recognized because we, we kind of had this idea of the tough leader or the strong leader that was in a way inhuman towards his organization or her organization. I'd love you to share that because you would have recognized those traits in your students that went on then to become great leaders. Well, I think that's right. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it, this remind you remind me of a conversation in, that I had when writing. I did a, wrote a number of cases on GE, and uh, I was a, a, asking Jack Welch, you know, who is clearly was a bit of a. a, a heroic kind of mass management and thought of himself that way. But I asked him what the job of a manager was, and he said, it's to help other people succeed. And uh, we, we at Harvard Business School, we say what we teach is how we teach. Well, a great case classroom is great because all the students in the room are excited about the ability they discover they have to contribute. And it's that interaction between listening and contributing and seeing the whole thing build that really gets people turned on by the case method. So again, it's what we teach is how we teach. And so it is that idea that a manager isn't telling people what to do. I love that. And it reminds me also, I had the great pleasure to spend time with the great D Hawk who passed away last year, the yeah. founder of Visa. And he had, he told me the root of the word education is the word e-juice, which means to draw out. And you remind me of that in that that's the job of a manager, really. And I'm using that as a segue to your own theory of resource allocation, because one of the very basic models you talk about there is that managers, just like they can induce potential like innovation within an organization, they can also block it. And it needs to bubble up to the top of the organization. And I'd love you to share that because this theory really inspired Clay. And also Clark Gilbert told me, you have to talk to Joe Bauer about resource allocation. It was an integral part of the theory of disruptive innovation. I'd love you to share the origins of that, Joe. Well, I uh, was an economics major uh, at Harvard, and uh, that I, I, I really was interested in economics because I thought economics was about uh, companies and markets. It, it took me a while to discover that over time economics had become mathematical theory with little to do with either. But um, so what interested me was 
simply how uh, companies made uh, long uh, made important decisions using economics. And uh, my father, uh, who is a Harvard graduate and and belonged to the Harvard Club of New York, and he introduced me to the chief economist of one of the Fortune 100s. And he would talk with me and then introduce me to others. And I began to have this feeling that long-range planning and capital budgeting didn't look a lot like what the theory said they were. And uh, to cut through a lot of... uh, Toing and froing. My thesis was basically just exploring in a very formal and theoretical way the problem of group decision making, because it was very clear to me that companies were about groups making decisions, not just individuals. And then as I began teaching at the, at the business school, uh, I was, it was, the course was called business policy, which is where the concept of corporate strategy was developed. And we talked about strategy, formulation and implementation. And then it, uh, I just figured I had to learn more about, and maybe this with this research that I would do. You asked it's the, in, in your note to me, you asked, where did this come from? My wife's parents had tickets to the Boston Symphony, and they would occasionally let us have their tickets. And I remember sitting in the fall of, I think, 1964. I was sitting there and just, for some reason... I was thinking about my work instead of the music. And it just seemed to me very strange. Long-range planning theory was very top-down. The whole idea was that you would make forecasts and then uh, break them up into pieces. So the revenue forecast of a company would be broken up into forecasts for divisions and so on. And that would cascade down. But capital budgeting was all about projects Mm -hmm. being defined quite low in the organization and then coming up. And I didn't see how those two were consistent. We should come back to this because Clay was very interested in that from a a conceptual point of view. Uh, He called, he, he, he said what, what you saw was an anomaly, and Clay got very interested in how anomalies drove theory. Anyway, uh, I got support from the Ford Foundation and permission from the dean, and I took more than a year to live in one Fortune 100 company. And they were great because they let me it was more than just letting me observe. They helped me with this research design of picking four different projects, watching them from as they were being developed, 
and then moving up through the, the process of moving up through the company. And I did that. And uh, I guess the things that really struck me was that, first of all, numbers, which we were at the business school and in finance, we take numbers as numbers. Uh, and the idea that a sales forecast is coming from one group of people and cost structure is coming from perhaps engineers or manufacturing or various estimates are coming literally from very different people with very different mindsets uh, was, it simply wasn't anywhere in the thinking. A number was a number. And it was very clear as I watched that it wasn't a number of number. A number was an estimate from a person and uh, their bosses were very aware which person. And some numbers they took very seriously. Others they were very skeptical. And these numbers were pushed, amalgamated into a proposal, a, 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 which was a story about why a project would be good in the future. And of course, I mean, and, and then from a manager's point of view, the question was really, was the source of the number good at delivering on their number? And by the time you got to something like a return on investment estimate, you were looking at an amalgamation, a ratio of all kinds of estimates. And it's, it's very simple. Uh, manufacturing is measured on capacity utilization. So manufacturing estimates tended to be fairly conservative and sales on the other hand <laughs> tended to be aggressive because that's how you drove. Uh, and then there were questions on technology. I mean, it was, you could begin to see that the process of creating a, uh, a project proposal was really a very human and, and social process. And somebody, uh, a department manager or a division manager, was responsible for putting these things together, and they would sign them. And then what I noticed was that at higher levels, when they would see a proposal, the first thing they did, you can watch people's eyes, the first thing they did was look at the size of the number. And then they looked at who signed it, which executive had signed the proposal. And it was really interesting because some of them they saw and they looked and they said, wow, okay. Uh, and then they would put it aside and say, and, and, it, and I would ask, why did I put it? They said, it's from Bill Smith. Bill Smith hasn't missed one of his forecasts and proposal. 
I don't need to waste time reading it. I'll just give him what he wants. And others, they just were similarly casual about because they, they totally distrusted the, the, the signer, the signature. And then there were some in the middle that they would really work on. Uh, in some companies later, I, you, you'd see staffs work on that, which, which really caused all sorts of problems because staff had their own incentive, which was basically gotcha trying to find it. But so it became clear that lots of things. First, there was the whole question of technical and economic substance. And the, each of the people involved had their own expertise and their own interests. And they got amalgamated. Now, up at the top of the company, they were worried about corporate strategy. And that was much more abstract. And somehow or other, these had to link. And there were these managers in the middle. I called them integrators. And there, it turned out very clearly, their responsibility was to use their experience and judgment to decide what to back and what not to back. And... uh all of this was, in a sense, shaped by what I call the context, the structural context within which they worked. Uh, and that, a lot of the time and effort of the top managers was spent on shaping that so that the incentives were right, so that the right people had been hired, so that the metrics were good. And you could also see that when they weren't, there were really problems. Uh, so you could imagine having a very good project, and it went nowhere because of various problems with either the quality of the metrics, the quality incentive, the quality of those managers in the middle. They turned out to be quite critical uh so uh i'll just keep going because so uh, clay that one day i remember it was a spring day and clay was near the end of his field work and we should pause there. It was ex the data that he gathered for his thesis was extraordinary. He didn't have a sample. He had what's called the population. Literally, he had all the data on all the uh, disk drives over whatever, 15, 20 years. And he had the data was quite clean because the description of what it was was independent of the measurement of the performance. That was from another. And it was just an astonishing data. Anyway, he, he, we were talking. By that time, I was his, with his thesis chair. And he was a 
talking about what he'd observed, that it was so hard for companies, even they, they had the technology, but they couldn't move it. And I guess I, I remember the conversation, and I, I said, it, well, it sounds to me as if the division presidents and the, the people in the middle really don't believe in in the forecasts they don't see they don't see how this is going to to work and i i don't remember the exact words but i well i just remember clay said that's it <laughs> and he ran off and he that the rest is history because he saw that the difference between a sustaining innovation and a disruptive innovation is that the managers in the middle, the people who were had to provide support, I called it impetus for projects, understood perfectly what a sustaining innovation would do, why customers would want it. And the opposite was true of a disruptive. They would that what they understood immediately is their customer would say, "Why are you bothering me with this? It's not going to help. I'm competing with blah blah blah, and they're just they're bringing out a new, which is it's going to be much more performance. And and you're you're showing me this rinky dink little thing, and it it doesn't perform." Thank you very much. And Clay just took that and ran. I mean, he 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 saw that he, and then of course he documented it uh, extensively. It's a, it's a very very powerful insight and. Uh, he, he took it in a certain direction, but I think uh, others have sort of recognized uh, some of the obstacles. One of our doctoral candidates that w worked with us, Howard Yu, why you, uh, looked at the entire motherboard industry in Taiwan. So it was another. And there, he, the, the, the change that was going on was that IBM had put everything that would go on, they put essentially a whole computer on a board. So the, the component industry was being wiped out, which is a form of disruption. And uh, the companies that succeeded had understood that and then tried, and this was, you know, Peter Drucker had this famous, uh, I mean, he was pretty remarkable. And he said, the goal of a company is to serve a customer. And out of that came, well, well Clay had his own way of phrasing that, which was very powerful, which was, 
what problem, what problem for the customer is our product, our service solving? And uh, a couple of these Taiwanese manufacturers saw that the customer for a laptop was a consumer who might be buying all sorts of other things than fancy uh, interiors. But, but they didn't even know how a laptop worked. They didn't care. They didn't use all of it. But if it was pretty and elegant, so they saw something. Steve Jobs saw that later. Anyway, their problem was that in their companies, which tended to be functionally organized, all the power was with the engineers. And the engineers couldn't care less what the design of the laptop looked like. So they were, in a way, that was disruption to try and get a consumer product out of these super powerful engineers was very hard. And it took enormous effort by the, the CEOs and top people. And that was the same thing. We saw it immediately because this is what Clay had identified was the, the, how organizational forces that were important because they were the source of success would become blocks to even simple things. Like, I mean, it's not hard to get a computer case to look pretty. But if it interfered with the innards, those companies could never build it because so I, that idea, this this was very powerful, and Clay took it across different industries and into healthcare. He looked at education. I mean, education is the classic case because basically we are trapped in a 13th century model of how to teach. Somebody stands up at the front of the room and talks, and High tech is, you know, we have a blackboard. And now, then, God forbid, it was terrible when it happened because then everybody used PowerPoint slides. And now you could really use up all the time telling students how brilliant you were. And, of course, this had nothing to do with learning. And so uh, he, he's written about education and the need to just and it's terrible need to disrupt education and medicine. So it's it was really a very very uh, remarkable contribution. Joe, I'd love to come back to a couple of points you made that are so important and and unfortunately they remain with us. These dilemmas, these challenges that are in all types of innovation and change and transformation within organizations. You mentioned the importance of the cast of characters. So those people, I, I often thought about, you were saying about these two forces coming together and the way that oil doesn't mix with water. There's like yeah. this layer that just doesn't let them communicate well, or they're, they're speaking different languages. And I thought firstly, how these theories, including your own resource allocation theory, that they give a common language. So at least they're speaking the same language. That was one thing that dawned on me. And then the other thing was, you mentioned about your yourself going to the symphony 
and it made me remind it reminded me of a great story of the the bias of value attribution who is the message coming from and there was a great story of the violinist joshua bell and he was playing he was doing a thought experiment so he was playing that night in the symphony orchestra in the hall in washington but he did an experiment where he put on a baseball cap and a t-shirt and he went into washington uh, into the subway and he took and he and he busked so he was a busker <laughs> so the baseball cap he took out his 3.5 million dollar violin and he played only two people in a couple of hours stopped to listen to him play yet they'd spend a hundred dollars to go across the road and listen to him and i was like it's the huge problem of human biases and value attribution who is the message coming from and and that human element despite the best strategies in the world is still an intense blocker of innovation i'd love you to share your insights on that well uh, i have you we might want to work with it sometime i have a a a, a a multimedia uh, product called Entrepreneurial Insights. And I asked uh, successful leaders of really major companies to answer the same six questions. So it's set up as a matrix on the screen and you can follow a question, the same question, and hear six different answers to the question. Or you can follow a manager across. And there, we're asking them, and they all talk about that the, the hardest thing they faced was the need to reinvent their company as the world changed. And it's just bloody difficult. One of the great sociologists said that uh, routine is the god of social organization. And it, that sounds like a put down, but if you think about it, when you get up in the morning, you don't want things to be different. You've done a lot of work on something. You want to go on and keep doing it. You've acquired a skill set, if you're lucky. You don't want that skill set to be devalued. You don't want to have to start changing. One of the CEOs in this multimedia project was Italian. And when the Berlin Wall came down, he decided at age 55 or closing on that his whole company had to learn English. Why? Because English was, he, he the, what he said to his, his, his managers, the market used to be Europe. Now the market goes from Lisbon to Moscow. And the only way we're going to get that is we all have to speak English. And he went off at age 55 to London he lived there. He immersed himself and learned much. He, I mean, he could speak a kind of pidgin, and, but he learned much better English. Well, that's bloody hard. And that's what's involved 
in dealing with disruptive change because you have to reinvent. Uh, Bergelman made a career, basically, uh, around the change at Intel when Andy Grove and uh, uh, Gordon Moore sat down and said, you know, if if we were starting this company today, what would we do? And they focus on the microprocessors. So that was the end of, uh, but it, it's really hard to do that. Uh, uh, I remember uh, Clay was fascinated. We had, I had written a case on Teradyne where Teradyne was in the business of creating measurement instruments for uh, chip manufacturers. And it was a classic case of disruption. Every, every company in, the, in that measurement instrument field was trying to make uh, instruments that were bigger and bigger and better and better. And, re- and they were getting very costly. And this guy, CEO, Alec Darbeloff was his name, had the had noticed uh, because he tracked he was close to MIT and he'd be that new technology was going to be much cheaper. And the problem was it didn't work as well. Does this sound familiar? Well, he'd read the book <laughs> or the article, I don't remember. So he and and he, we wrote a case on what he did, and uh, he literally did exactly what Clay wrote about, and we we wrote in the article, which is he set it up in a different location, and even then he he had to coach the team that had been assembled so that they would break out of their mindset of how you did these things. And he he sent the one of his uh, research, one of the research guys on the team over to a startup in Cambridge and to see what they were doing with Excel. And this young man discovered, oh, my God, they've got tools just using Excel that can do everything we need. All we're going to have to do is plug in different numbers. In fact, the customers are going to be able to do that to adjust their machine. And it costs, you know, $100,000 instead of God knows how many millions of man months of engineering. Well, that, that was a very direct, top-down, substantive intervention in helping. He didn't tell him what to do. He said, go visit and learn. And uh, anyway, it turned out to be a terrific success. Uh, Eventually, Darbaloff, after five years or so, he founded the company. So after a long career, he retired. And I saw him. He said, they're doing it again. <laughs> the engineers have gotten control of the thing. Uh, 
I mean, it, 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 to on the same point, he, he would Alec would eat lunch with the engineers in the cafeteria, and he would always ask them, "What are you working on?" And he would ask them, "Why is that a good thing?" And they would tell him how, what a fantastic engineering accomplishment it was. And he would ask them, does the customer care? Why was this a successful product? And, he talks, and they tell him again how it was built, why it was special, what was unusual, not what problem itself for the customer. And that, I guess, is... Uh, Maybe that's the way God wired us, but it's very hard for an executive to lead a team so that they focus on the needs of a customer as opposed to the things they can do. And that's all, that's, you said it's everywhere. It is everywhere. And you can probably catch yourself doing the same thing because it's, extremely human we're wired we're wired to to love what we do and the ego gets in the way and so i i just find the the theories are so valuable to become a common language but it still doesn't make it easy it just it just nudges you it gives you a little bit of the the scale is gaffed in your favor tiny little bit but the human part is always the most difficult one joe i, I i'd love to read a quote from from the article and perhaps you'll just free freestyle on it, free freestyle jazz. You said, no matter what, no matter the industry, a corporation consists of business units with finite lifespans. The technological and market basis of any business will eventually disappear. Disruptive technologies are part of that cycle. Companies that understand this process can create new businesses to replace the ones that must inevitably die. To do so companies must give managers of disruptive innovation free reign to realize the technology's full potential, even if it means killing the mainstream business. For the corporation to live, it must be willing to see business units die. If the corporation doesn't kill them off itself, competitors will. That beautifully articulated. But again, this is like, well, I know, Joe, we love each other. We play golf together. I grew up with the guy. I went to school with him. And you're telling me I have to close his department? What's going to happen to Joe? So the, there's human forces behind the, the the very analytical or logical decision that hold us back all the time. Well, let me give you uh, uh, some radical examples of this problem. Um. And it, they're controversial and provocative because people have very, very uh, strongly held views as to what, what what's what's going on to this day. Uh, when Nixon became president of the United States, we were deeply immersed in the war in Vietnam. And although Nixon was a very strong anti-communist, he did not think that this was a strategically 
useful engagement for the United States. In the end, the way he got us out was by getting his Secretary of Defense, Melvin Laird, to cut the budget for the war, I forget, 30 million or 300 million a month. And the military recognized that they just weren't going to have the money to fight. And so we had the debacle in Hanoi, for which he was much criticized. But now we're out of Vietnam. Vietnam is our ally, and we're in a different world. If you go to Afghanistan, there was a special committee. I forget what it was called. It wasn't a committee, a special task force, something like that, that the military had set up to evaluate what was happening. And it basically came back with, I think it became public roughly about the time of Biden's inauguration. But at any rate, nobody focused on it because of January 6th. Uh, it basically said that the, the Taliban have 90% of the country. What, what we've been doing is a failure. The thing is corrupt. It's a disaster. I'm sure. So now let me break back. In the first company I went to that I studied for resource allocation, I remember going to talk to the CEO one time. And he asked me what I was finding and did I was there anything he should know? And uh said, well, uh I explained that people thought that he did not uh, punish failures, that he rewarded people. He'd move them out of their job and into something that was cushy. And he said, what people don't understand is that my job is theater. And I'm being evaluated every very, every minute and whatever I do. The hardest job I have is getting out of a bad business. Because whenever I ask people for plans for how to get out, because we're not succeeding and the world is changing, right? This is disruption. The world is changing on us. I get a plan back as to how to succeed. If we just spend a little more money so now, if you listen to how people talk about Biden and getting out of Afghanistan, what they talk about is the debacle, not that we're out. Not that we never had a strategy for what to do with that company. Oh, but we're, of course we were helping them, but that's not why we were there. And we were achieving what we intended to achieve when we went in. So maybe in 25 years, they'll say Biden was able to get us out, and we are out. And it feels awful because we see people, we still see the people in pain that are there. It's very hard to do these things. And it's, I mean, it's, it's very hard in a company 
to 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 do the. I mean, uh, I've watched. I watched Jeff Immel. Uh, he really had a hard time because he could, couldn't find it in himself to criticize Jack Welch. He he felt he could, he had to make changes that were, if you like, under the radar. Whereas when Jack came in, the first thing he did was undo two of the major decisions that his predecessor had made. Reg Jones had bought Utah Mining. Jack Welch sold it in the first year. He, it's, that's where CEOs earn their keep, doing these very, very hard, and sometimes, by the way, they're wrong. But, uh, I mean, I gave a, a a positive picture of Biden. It, it, some maybe it'll turn out he was wrong, but he did it. And from him, he believes strongly we had to be out, and we're out, and we don't have troops there, and we're able to focus on China and the Ukraine, and not worry about Afghanistan. It's hard. I remember in in uh, my, in one seminar, an early research seminar in, in business policy, we had Fritz Roethlisberger, the great, great uh, Mayo. Mayo and Roethlisberger did the experiments that led to the field of human relations. And he w was had listening to a discussion of what strategy was. And I remember he said, look, if I understand what a great strategist does, it's perverse. He's looking around for what's going to go wrong. What kind of a sick person is that? <laughs> and, but that's what we're talking about. That, and, you know, uh, Andy Grove's book, only the paranoid survive because what you, the quote you said that in the in the cycle of things businesses die and you never know why and you can't blame but they're gone and if you wait too long you don't have the resources to pivot to something else I remember Joe reading at once that the, the best way to get an organization to pay attention to security or say, for example, for fire measures, to put fire measures, preventative measures in the building is to burn down the building next door. <laughs> and then they'll take notice. And unfortunately, that's what you recognize, Clay recognized in his work is when they realize it's time to change, it's too late. And then they throw the Hail Mary pass. And the Hail Mary pass doesn't hit hands. It goes to ground. And yeah. so does the organization. And I, I'd love your advice maybe for the change maker who often is like Cassandra or like Chicken Little running around saying the sky's falling down within an organization and is not listened to. 
so that's one part and, and i think about this as the, the the two forces you were mentioning earlier on and then for the leaders to have open ears to listen to those so what would your be advice for, for these guys and then for these guys well first for the for the first group the the the, the ones that see it and are trying to get attention john cotter wrote a book called the iceberg is melting and it's all about penguins that don't understand their iceberg is melting. And it, it's all about how to deliver a message that's very unpleasant. Uh, frankly, in my own experience, the only way to do it is the case method. Uh, and what, what do I mean by that? When I, this is now Joe Bauer's consultant. If I see a big, big problem and my client, the CEO, does not, the only way I know to get him to see it is for him to experience it. And often the problem is that he's got a group of people who are trapped in the past and he doesn't see that. I ha I had one project where we... We had a normal kind of a strategy week workshop over a weekend. And I remember seeing him afterwards, and he said, well, that was really very good. And so on. I said, really? I said, the room was supporting what you think has to happen. And he realized, he said, just two people. I said, that's right. He said, okay, thank you. Project's over. <laughs> I mean, because he had, he knew what to do once he understood. Uh, I mean, it, it's at Harvard Business School uh, in the late 50s, we experienced uh, the publication of a Ford Foundation report on business schools. And it was written by Lee Bach and someone else from Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon. And it basically said management is a science, mathematical, quantitative science and behavioral science and enough of this arm waving. And it was pretty clear that uh, while Harvard Business School wasn't going to have to change, it fundamentally, it certainly had to be quantitative. And the dean had, there was a, a meeting, I was too young to have been there, but I was told about it, where he explained to his inner council that this was going to have to happen. And they said, well, you know, a lot of the faculty aren't going to want to do this. And he said, well, then we're going to have to get some new faculty, won't we? And lo and behold, 10 years later, the entire faculty was quantitative, not because it was new people. It's because we brought in, we helped them develop that toolkit. It wasn't, it's very hard to get people to see the need to change. You you say there, there there was there was a great line um, 
guy called David Fubini was on the show before, and he has a great book called Hidden Truths, and uh, he's a Harvard Harvard colleague. Uh, um, and he said the the question is to cha- to have successful change management. Do you have to change the management? And unfortunately, most cases it's yes. And I, I would love this maybe as a final thought for our audience of the hour, the hour of power, which was fantastic, was you just as you create sustaining innovation, that that curve of of I know how to make the product better based on what it used to be. The same thing happens with our mental models, the mental model becomes a sustaining way of thinking. And it's very hard to rewire that. And I'd love your thoughts. And I know this is the value of an education. This is a value of new thinking, new ways of seeing things, new theories as lenses. And then obviously, you know, being taught by a consultant like you, it's this outside view to go, what if and questioning and helping people nudge their behavior slightly differently. But what would be your advice for somebody in a change role and maybe it's a ceo but oftentimes it comes from lower down the organization somebody who's brought in as a transformation officer to try and change the organization and it's a mammoth task it's i think the critical thing to understand is that it's very hard to get people to change their mind by telling them most of us, if we're good, can see when there's evidence of a problem. So the guy who really transformed the Ford Motor Company uh, in the 80s into a competitive organization whose name I'm blocking on as I talk to you, but it might come to me, was in his immediately prior job, had was running, um, Ford, I think, had the, I forget their brand of, of television. They, Ford, the Ford Corporation made TV sets. They made their sets in Thailand. And he said he went to Thailand and there all the manufacturers, the Japanese ones and the American ones, had their uh, factories in the export zone tariff. And he visited them and he said the contrast between the Japanese factories and ours was dramatic. And it was the same workers. And it was the same form. They were all Taiwanese. And I just had to conclude that the problem wasn't our workers. It was us. So, and then based on that, he was able to, and then he had other, he, again, he didn't just tell them. He sent them over to look. And that's how a lot of the auto companies would take people to Toyota and look at what was going on. I remember one U.S. executive saying, I was going through this factory, and when I was finished with the tour, I said, where's your repair bay? And he said, we don't have repairs. 
And that was, for me, it was talking as the U.S. executive, that was the transformation. They were doing something that didn't have repairs because they were making it right the first time. So I think you have to do that. If it's a big deal, people have to experience it because that's how we all learn. That's why the case method works. It's not what we teach, it's how we teach. It's it, by helping people experience the process of learning with a group, of solving a problem with a group, and understanding that what a manager does is what the teacher in a case classroom does, helps them learn. Beautiful. Beautiful, Joe. I, I think that's a beautiful way to, to conclude the Hour of Bauer. I thought maybe because this, I, I hope that this will be a real comprehensive tip of the hat to the life and work and theories of Clayton Christensen. Maybe you might want to finish today's episode with, with a final thought on your friend. And then you and I hopefully will come back and do some more hours of Bauer in the future. So I, uh, what, uh, at various points, uh, this morning, I've talked about unusual aspects of clay. I would say that the first is that when he observed something that bothered him, he wouldn't let it go. And this problem just bothered him. He came to get a doctorate late in relatively late in his career, so that maybe he could study and find out. And then he did something which many people don't do when they're doing field work, which is he, he spent a year getting this incredible database he told me one time about how much he lived in a a, a low-class motel in San Jose, which was where he could get some of the data. And he would spend days building his database and come home and stay in this little hotel. He quite committed to do what was necessary to get the data. And then he had the wit to use ideas and uh, to ask questions and use, use the word humble. He, he, when he was in his quest, he was humble. <laughs> Mind you, when he thought, when he, later, when he had the answer, he changed, he pivoted, and he worked very hard to think about how to build a course that would help students absorb and come to understand, help them discover for themselves the power. And he put as much time and effort into that. And then to do that as it became successful, and there were more and more students who wanted it, or eventually about 75% of the second year, he learned how to build a team to teach that material, which is very hard. So I guess what I'm saying is it's, it's this 
wonderful and curiosity and then intelligence to see new answers and enormous perseverance and willingness to do the work necessary to do it right to, to, so that it he, he wasn't just pontificating glibly and then to build and work with people so that he could share those ideas and it was he was really very very remarkable guy an anomaly in himself you, you said to come back to the word anomaly and on his door, famously, he said anomalies wanted, but he himself was an anomaly from everything that I'm picking up. And Joe, I believe from our talks together and from what I've heard about you, and they say character is what you're what people say about you when you're not in the room. Everybody I've spoke to speaks so highly of you as well. And I'm sure you rubbed off massively on Clay. And I want to thank you for your time today. It was an absolute pleasure. And I, I do hope that we'll come back and cover your books. Hear me, I'm pointing to the... But, and I, I want to just tell people that that article, that that famously famous article from 1995, Disruptive Technologies Catching the Wave, is in in, in a collection of essays uh, and cases that are in the Clayton Christensen Reader. That's where I got that from. But it's also on Harvard Business Review online on hbr.org. For now, Joe, it's an absolute pleasure. Professor Joseph L. Bauer, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Aidan. Nice one, Joe. Brilliant, man. Good. I want to thank our sponsor, NextEstate.com, who specialize in English-speaking, buying, selling, and managing of properties in the German market. They're Berlin-based. You can find them at next-estate.com.